Hi, Simon Hill here. Enjoy our podcast. If you'd like to help us keep delivering the sort of quality football chat you want, then you can show your support by making a donation. Big or small, however much you can afford, we appreciate all your help and every cent will be ploughed back into improving production. Thanks in advance from all of us at Shim, Spider and so much more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Craig Moore. What a piece. Beautifully struck home by Craig Moore. And the Australian supporters go wild in Stuttgart. Rickson's got a kick. And Celtic couldn't handle Wood on the set piece. It's a brilliant header. And Kale goes to Spitzagel. What about that? What about that? Here's Aloisi for a place in the World Cup. He's You're with Shim, Spider, and so much more. Take it away, fellas. Yes, hello again. Episode 13, coming your way of Shim, Spider, and so much more. And we're in a different location, as you can see this week. The pod goes on the road. Well, to my house, to be more exact, the wonders of Zoom. Another fascinating week in the world of football in Australia. The revised 11 principles, which uh, forms the subject of Simon Says this week. Lucas Neal returns out of the wilderness Tony Gustafsson is the man to lead the Matildas over the next crucial few years, leading into a home World Cup. And while lower-tier clubs struggle to stay alive in England, Sheffield United pay £23.5 million for a striker who's yet to play a single minute in the Premier League. Wow. Joining me to offer their expert opinions, Zelko Kalat, sponsored by Coffee in Greece, and Craig Moore, sponsored by No Dose in Scotland. <laughs> How are you, boys? Good morning, Kalimera, everybody. It's ridiculous. Even the guy down at reception said to me, what's going on? You're an hour early. I said, yeah, the clock's changed in Australia. Mate, and luckily I'll give you the nod on the clock changes, Spider, or we would start without you. Mate, you've done well, Big Chops, because, mate, I was no chance of turning up at the right time. Yeah. Well, we're pleased to have you both on board. Um, Spider, uh, we've got a Twitter question for you to kick things off from Brett Griffo. He says, as the A-League's 13th franchise, <laughs> that's not bad. I don't mind that one. I've seen that one on Twitter somewhere. I've said, that's not bad. We had a little giggle about that when I shared that with the boys here. Good stuff. Uh, Maury, how's the agency business going? A busy time for you, I imagine, with the end of the European transfer window on Monday. Yeah, no, it is very, very busy, Simon. Uh, look, hard to get involved in, in business. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it, um, networking, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of positive movements. Uh, maybe not this window, but preparation for the next one. Okie dokie. Uh, let's get into it then with a slightly altered version this week of Simon Says. 
Simon Says. So this week saw the release of the second and final iteration of FFA's 11 Principles, the plan to take the game of football forward here in Australia. At 74 pages, it is a bit slimmer than the 109-page whole of football plan tome, which was released in 2015, which we assume is now utterly redundant. Uh, And it follows on, of course, from an extensive consultation process. Now, like its predecessor, there's a lot to absorb. So in keeping with the 11 theme, we've broken it down into 11 key points. So you don't have to, and we'll give our views on each. So here we go. Point one, firstly, the principles state that FFA is about to move away from its College Street base in Sydney, potentially, we guess, to a national home of football, uh, part of a plan to get football homes in each state, and the home in the Matildas, presumably the one uh, planned in Victoria. My take, brilliant. It's time the game had its own homes, and uh, the fact that FFA has terminated its lease suggests to me that uh, a plan is in place. Uh, Maybe this can house the much-talked-about museum, which we'll come on to later. The game uh, does seem to be finally getting its act together in terms of fighting for funding uh, for these projects, uh, helped, of course, by uh, landing the FIFA Women's World Cup in in 2023. Spider, what's what's your view on that? Look, I agree with you. I think it's about time. Uh, It's just a matter of where we go to. Uh, Obviously, I'm thinking it's going to stay in Sydney somewhere. Uh, it'll come down to, to costs and funding. Uh, maybe Parkley might host it. They might build something else at Parkley. They've got a great setup down there. So who knows? But it's a great idea. Looking forward to seeing where FFA goes to. Long, uh, long way to go if there's going to be a football museum there. It's not exactly at the heart of the city, but we shall see. Uh, point two, it plans to continue to unbundle the A-League from FFA control with the club's of course, being given responsibility for negotiating the CBA and selling the commercial properties of the professional leagues. It intends to unify the football calendar with Asia, uh, and that, of course, is the continuation of the push towards a winter A-League and W-League. Now, my take on this is uh, yet another deadline has passed on independence. Uh, October the 1st was mooted as uh, the day the clubs and FFA were finally going to separate. Once again, it hasn't happened Uh, Goodness knows how many deadlines we've missed over the last couple of years. Uh, I do hear an in-principle non-binding agreement has been signed. Hey, it's only 2018 since we first started talking about all this. Uh, The glacial pace for me is very frustrating, especially with the Fox deal now having less than 10 months to run. Uh, On the unification of the calendar, yep, a tick from me. I I think winter is worth a try and the football is better, though, of course, we, we know the potential problems as well. Maury, what's your take? Yeah, look, my, my take will, Simon, first and foremost, I hope that this is um, we have better results and, and kind of don't waste our money like we did on the whole of football. Um, but in terms of uh, alignment, uh, for me, that's, that's always been key in Australia. I think that's a non-negotiable. And I believe winter, uh, we are the, you know, the professional game meets the majority of the game in Australia, I think is a, a fantastic fit. Uh, clubs wanted control. Um, So in terms of independence, they need to to get their act together quickly. Uh, Pleasing to hear that the CBA is a a lot closer because that's protection for all uh, in the game, I believe. Um, Just one point I put down, I'll mark down for that, was the, you know, with the independent structure and setup. I would really like to see an independent panel that not necessarily is the club people, Simon, that, that, that are driving this because I just feel that you need that independence. People that are there to, 
to, to make decisions for the best in, interest of the game. So hopefully that's something that uh, will be put in place also to help guide the game in a positive way moving forward. Yeah, some, some structure needs to be put in place uh, sooner rather than later, you would uh, imagine, if the A-League is going to go independent. Uh, point three, the A-League is to expand to 16 teams over the next two phases, and uh, they're going to reintroduce the marquee player concept. I don't know if it ever actually went away. Uh, it wants to establish an internal transfer market, which we've heard a lot about, and a clearinghouse to facilitate that. Uh, and it also wants more minutes for young players. Um, my take, a 16-team A-League, yep, bring it on. Uh, just two questions. When are these next phases taking place? And crucially, what is the process? Uh, more minutes for kids, fine. I applaud the upping of the age limit from under 20 to under 23 for A-League players in their MPL teams. Uh, but what does it mean for the A-League? Does that mean quotas of, of young players? Um, on the transfer market, I think that's long overdue and, of course, should uh, help with the Australian uh, football economy in particular. Spider, your take. Yeah, look, it all sounds great. I think uh, it's quite clear that we're all de- speaking the same language now about uh, the younger players getting an opportunity. So maybe it does mean three players in the first 11 under 23 level or playing in the MPL. I think now it's even more important that the second division once again gets a push. So whether the other four four teams come from the, the second division. But look, the directions are right. Uh, we're starting to speak the same languages. The timelines are important. When is this going to happen? Obviously, it's not going to happen in 2021. But as soon as 2022, that would be fantastic because I don't. I really don't think it's that hard to put together. Okay, point four. Uh, it wants the W League to become one of the top five global leagues and to establish a women's football department to lead a national strategy and implement a 10-year women's f- football business plan. Okay, great. How to attract top players here in the face of huge competition from the US and increasingly from Europe? Uh, I guess that comes down to money, which we do not have. And also the W League, if it's going to be one of the top five global leagues, surely needs to expand both in terms of size and the number of fixtures it plays. When and how is that going to happen? Those are my two big questions, Maury. Yeah, no, look, a football department and a plan for for women's football is, is crucial. Uh, I hope that in terms, because I believe we've got a golden generation of girls currently, and hopefully there's been some learning of how uh, football in Australia stood still with the men's golden generation uh, in terms of that ongoing development. So hopefully that that can be rectified. Personally, I believe for us to be a top five uh, league uh, throughout the world, I think is unrealistic. Um, Money dictates that. Uh, we've touched on the league, Simon, that, that um, are developing uh, throughout the world that are throwing far more dollars at it than what in Australia we will be able to. I think realistically we should focus on continuing to be a development league. Okay, point five. Uh, it intends to adopt a one football governance framework, essentially one strategy across the nation, uh, with the document pointing out the duplication in the various states at administrative workforce and financial levels. It says an estimated $164 million is currently levied upon players and parents annually. Of that, $108 million remains with clubs, $23 million with associations, $24 with member feds, 
who also receive a 6 million distribution from FFA, taking that up to 30 million. FFA retains just 9 million, with 6 million of that redistributed, which is extraordinary. Uh, And FFA reckons that by transitioning towards this one football model, it can save $20 million in operational efficiencies. My take, I think it's time this happened. One country, one game, one plan, a unitary model with state advisory boards for me. Uh, FFA sets policy, member feds carry it out. No longer should the tail wag the dog, but good luck getting turkeys to vote for Christmas. I reckon that's going to require government intervention. Uh, let's hope FIFA doesn't notice. Spider. Yeah, look, that's <laughs> look. it sounds great. Uh, the idea is great. Uh, we've had this discussion, I think, in previous years. It hasn't eventuated. I, would, I really would love to see this happen. Um, I think a lot of people, football people out there, would like to see this happen. And then the money gets distributed in the right ways. Uh, I, I have my doubts. I have my doubts. It sounds great, but I really do have my doubts. Point six. As a knock-on from that, it wants more affordable football for kids and is considering financial controls on player payments at MPL level. And it also wants to review the role of private academies. Uh, I've got no issue with any of those proposals, though I do remember Hamburger saying many years ago he wanted a licensing scheme for private academies and it never, ever happened. Uh, I just wonder if it's just too difficult to regulate, maybe. Maury? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I actually think that Hamburger was on the right uh, track back then. It's something that I've pushed also with the FFA in regards to... The reason why we have these private academies, Simon, is because of the the lack of direction that has been... uh, that previously hasn't been in place. There's a lot of good academies out there doing the right things that are offering the extra training. Uh, I believe that we need to to set criteria, uh, to have accreditation... Therefore, we get far more information coming back into the organisation on these players and how they're developing. Okay, point seven. Um, It wants to transition the FFA Cup into a group stage in the early rounds, adopt a women's FFA Cup, and for the Cup final to have its own identity, maybe it's the last game of the season. Uh, It's also considering renaming or rebranding the A and W leagues. Uh, Now, personally, I applaud the ideas around the FFA Cup. It will give MPL... Uh, clubs more games against A-League opposition and, of course, you know, more content to sell as well. The only downside, I suppose, is that lack of a, a one-off edge to the games in the early stages that we see at the moment. A standalone cup final, yes, please. Uh, for me, it should be in Canberra, the national capital for the final, to create some traditions. Uh, play in Australia, New Zealand, men's and women's international there that weekend as well, make it a real festival of football to close the season. Um, in terms of rebranding the A-League and W-League, Hmm. Why? And to what? Spider? Yeah, look, I, I'm a little, I love the idea of the FFA Cup being a one-off match because the reality is uh, the MPL clubs, they probably do have a chance in one match. I think the more games you play, the A-League clubs get the advantage. Um, but that might, that might get closer if we get 16 teams, if we get a second division. That's a different story. I understand what they mean by group stages, more games for everyone, which is, again, fantastic. More crowds coming in, uh, more profits for the clubs. Uh, changing the A-League and the W-League, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where that's come from. Uh, sponsorship, maybe it could be called whoever sponsors the league. I, I, I don't know. But uh, obviously the FFA Cup thing, I'm a bit like you. I, I think the one-off games are more exciting. Uh, having a home for the final of the FFA Cup, I like that idea as well, Simon. 
Uh, Canberra, fantastic. Why not? Yeah. Okay, point eight. Uh, it wants to introduce a digital football hub to enhance commercial opportunities for the game, perhaps by the construction of a special purpose vehicle to help that commercialization process and as a vehicle for the OTT platform. Again, I think this is something that's overdue and a portal to the game's future with linear and pay TV uh, seemingly not much interested at the moment. It's incumbent that this is set up ASAP. Uh, the special vehicle, uh, sorry, special purpose vehicle is interesting, presumably some sort of uh, investment partner. Without at the hub and the OTT platform, it probably doesn't happen. But again, there's not that much detail about this, Maury. No, and this kind of goes back to, to point five, I think, Simon, in terms of... Um, you know, coming together as one and the savings that we know that have been put out there in terms of administration. So if we can potentially save 20 million through administration and ploughing through with strong leadership, the member federations, then there's 20 million that could go to investing in the game with a third party, uh, sorry, third party ownership. That is a good starting point to come up with this digital, uh, digital content, this, this hub, this one platform that really is going to be essential to drive our game forward. So is it possible? Yes, I believe it is. But we need to make tough decisions and work through these member federations sooner rather than later. Okay, point nine. It plans to continue the development of a national second division framework, which it says should ensure connection to the MPL via sporting merit. It wants to consider how to access these competitions. And again, it offers up the Mexico example of promotion being based upon a a points per game basis over three years. uh, And a national club licensing framework will be established to help that process. Um, I I have to say, I'm disappointed there's not a more formal commitment to a Division 2. And I did also have to smile at the irony of the insistence that any Division 2 needs to connect to the NPL via sporting merit. Uh, I hope the A-League's going to abide by that principle as well. Um, As to the Mexico (laughs) example, um, not for me. I think once promotion and relegation is established, it should be one up, one down, or two up, two down every season. Everything else, Spider, in my opinion, is just a little bit too open to manipulation. Yeah, I think so as well. I I think uh, the main principle is to get the NPL or the second division up and running. Get these clubs that want to be a part of it, get it up and run. The sooner we get it up and running, the sooner we will have relegation and promotion, the sooner we will have some sort of uh, normality to football. At the moment, we have a league that has no relegations. So uh, that news needs to happen quickly. I totally agree with you. I mean, no manipulation. Get there, put the teams in, and off we go. Okay, point 10. It plans a football museum. Uh, to celebrate the game's history, um, obviously about time too, but that can't be, in my opinion, the start and finish of celebrating the story of the game. Uh, a lot of stories need to be told. Perhaps the digital hub is, is a potential space for that. Um, and I also hope that by celebrating history, in inverted commas, we do also remember that it's not just about the NSL, but uh, the history of a game that goes all the way back to the 1870s in this country, um, we actually set up a heritage committee for that, of which, of course, I should state I am a member. Um, we haven't met since COVID started in March, so I don't know what's going on with that at the moment. Uh, Maury, what's your, your take on the museum? Mate, I, I agree with you here, Simon. I think a National Football Museum is a, is a step in the, the right direction. We need to embrace the, the game's history. Um, and like you, I'd like to see that go back to 
uh, you know, how the game started, who were the people that were involved uh, in starting our game up and really go back and, and tell those stories uh, because it's important not only for, um, for what's happening today but for the future. We need to continue tell, uh, telling our stories. National Football Museum, fantastic idea. Gives us a sense of permanence in the community, doesn't it? Uh, final point, Spider, it wants to increase coaching and refereeing numbers, connect better with the Indigenous communities and establish a national agenda for futsal and beach soccer. Uh, personally, I've got no problem with any of that. But again, rather scant in terms of detail on how it's all going to be achieved. Yeah, well, look, uh, the coaching thing, I think, is a problem because uh, the cost of being a coach... Uh, and the mumbo-jumbo that you've got to go through to get the licences is a bit of a pain in the backside, to tell you the truth. Uh, anyone who's been down that path will, will actually know what I'm talking about. Um, but, look, yeah, we, we, have to, we have to have good coaches. We have to have good referees. I have heard that the referee numbers have gone down. Um, we're the last country in the world should have numbers go down in referees because... This happens in Europe and overseas with the referees. I can have the referees running away from it, but it doesn't happen that much in Australia. I know people say, you know, the shouting from the sidelines and that, but it's it's not that bad. We're quite, uh, <clears throat> how could I say, we're quite nice back home in Australia. So hopefully the numbers are up. Hmm. <clears throat> up we, we lost you a little you bit. There, you there, Simon? Yeah, we've we've got you back, but ah, uh, oh, sorry, mate. You went all strange for a minute, which is yeah. No, as I said, I just hope, I just hope that the numbers go up in all departments, coaching and refereeing. That's it. You know what I'd like to see also there, Simon. I don't think we mentioned uh, school football uh, mm. enough in Australia. School football and and also potentially university football and other two areas where we know certainly in Asia. Uh, you know, the like, likes of Japan, the high schools and, and, and the university or the college football, plus we know what happens in the MLS in America. It's probably something that we don't speak about in Australia, but in terms of growth and, and growing our game, I think there are another two key areas where we can look to tap into. Totally agree. Um, overall, the most glaring revelation for me was that uh, Sport Australia High Performance Funding gives football just $3.4 million a year, while sports like basketball and and field hockey get more than double than that. So not just ridiculous, but in my opinion, scandalous uh, underfunding for the biggest participation sport in the country. Um, anything or any uh, anyone left out? There are four big absentees for me. I'll get your take on this, guys. Uh, firstly, and most importantly, the fans. They get a cursory mention in Principle 8 to wit, engaging with fans to build trust and alignment, building fan forums and other platforms to encourage fan integration into club administration should be encouraged. I, I don't quite know what that means. Um, fan Me either. No, no idea. Um, but I, I would like to say that, you know, when is the penny going to drop in this country? This whole document, and, and lots of us spend an awful lot of time talking about players and coaches and administrators. We've got lots of people in all of those positions. Loads of players, loads of coaches, loads of administrators. What we don't have is enough fans paying their hard-earned to underpin the sport at professional level at least and provide the income that's going to make these things reality that we talk about in the 11 principles. Um, so I think that was disappointing uh, I'd have liked to have also seen attendance targets set for A-League and W-League clubs 
uh, and a plan to increase eyeballs on television in the short term as well. But um, that was conspicuous by its absence for me. Uh, secondly, stadiums, plenty, plenty of talk about homes of football, but I think that leans more towards administrative homes and training bases. What about our own grounds? What about plans to play professional games in more appropriately sized venues rather than cavernous homes like Songcorp or the rebuilt SFS? Uh, thirdly, and you hinted uh, uh, to this massive one. Timeline. It's a massive one. Yeah, timelines. Um, I, I don't think many would disagree with the arguments put forward in the principles, uh, and even fewer would rail against the sports desires. But when is all this going to happen? Uh, too many of the timelines, woolly, non-existent, to be best summed up as at some point in the future, which is very similar to the whole football plan. Um, and fourthly and crucially, who's paying for all this? Aside of the special purpose vehicle mentioned in connection with the commercialization of the game, vehicle is yet unknown, the elephant in the room, it remains money. How does the, the game generate the sorts of revenues it needs to implement expansion, more games, player developments, football museums, digital hubs, and for sure government might be about to increase its investment on the back of the Women's World Cup, but that's only uh, part of the answer. And For me, without a more co- commercially robust game, the 11 principles could well end up like the whole of football plan, which is basically, Maury, uh, just the latest in a long series of wish lists. Yeah, and let's not forget the amount of money that people were paid to put the whole of football strategy in place. Who probably majority of them are no longer with us. Um, this can't be another uh, document that, again, dollars would have been invested, time, uh, a lot of work. Uh, so we need to we need to find the solutions and answers to make sure that this document comes to life, Simon. Um, you touched on the fans in terms of one of your, your main points there that's, that, that's been missed out. Fans play a massive, massive role. We, we, we know that and they certainly, um, we don't highlight that enough. Um, you know, the Central Coast Mariners were talking about that, the, the fans trust and kind of, you know, a, a club model where fans engage and invest in a football club. Is that the way forward uh, for our fans for, for some of the clubs in Australia? You know, that, that might well work in Australia. Spider, you go. Yeah. yeah, look, I, I think it's, uh, I think Maury's right. It, it actually could work for certain clubs. Like, I, d- I don't know if it'll work for like the Not Sydney the FCs, ones. the Melbourne Victories. Clubs. What's that? Not the big clubs. Yeah, but I think for the regional clubs, a hundred percent. And uh, the the four other clubs that, if we're talking about getting the A League up to sixteen teams. Those four clubs will actually play a big part in in how the the game looks looks as well if we get up to sixteen teams in the competition. So look, it's definitely one to look at, Maury. I, I don't mind the principles; they quite they seem quite simple. But once again, like Simon said before, mate, let's make it happen. You know, let's stop doing all this talking. Let's make it happen. Like you know, let's not just flush this down the toilet as well, and then ten years down the track we're talking about it again. There's been a lot of momentum since COVID. Let let's really make it happen. Yeah, and again, I can't stress uh, the importance because we know there's no money or you know that investment that we're talking about in Australia. We need to make tough decisions when we're being told that up to twenty million dollars is being wasted in administration. We need to look. To, to make a decision to stop that happening, and that's 20 million that could be invested in the game. Yeah. Okay, thanks, boys, for the moment. So, uh, the 11 principles, uh, in my opinion, they're a good foundation for the game. We've long called for a plan 
Now we've got the semblance of one. Now it's up to the game's leaders to turn it into practice from theory. That's their job. And as ever, if they don't, we'll hold them accountable because that's <laughs> our. Let's get into some other areas of discussion around the local game in Hard Talk. Hard Talk. Hard Talk is brought to you by StreamGay, which has been live streaming since 2008, specialising in custom-built stream pages, pay-per-view and multi-language streaming. They can cater to large online conferences with multiple simultaneous streams and destinations, including all social media channels, servicing clients Australia-wide. Go to streamgate.com.au or find them on Instagram. As ever, a big thanks to our sponsors. First big topic on Hard Talk today, the appointment of Tony Gustafsson as the new Matildas coach announced at Australia House in London. He's well-credentialed. He's led uh, the USA women's national team to two World Cups as assistant Jill Ellis. Um, but he's got big expectations in this job. Is he the right appointment, Maury and Spider? Well, I, don't, I don't know the bloke, to be honest with you. I, I, I've went through his CV. I've seen what he's done. Uh, yeah, women's football, we all know, is not my strength. So it's not as if I go and have a look at too many results. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I'll be honest with you, the one thing I didn't like, I didn't like the push by the women to, to appoint him as coach. I didn't like that. But I'll give, I'll give the guy a fair chance. And uh, he's, he's got a big job ahead of him, let me yeah, tell this you. This is a, it's a massive job. Look, he has a decent resume, uh, Spider, and he's worked at a decent level. His involvement with the US women's national team dealing with the, 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 the creme de la creme, uh, so to speak, in uh, women's football. By all accounts, he, he's, a, he's a straight shooter. Um, and I, I know that there's Matilda contracts and, and that kind of thing um, with how it's structured at the moment. He just believes he's a type of coach that he doesn't want to be told who he can select them because they're on contracts. He wants to select the best group of girls. And that's something that I admire because at the end of the day... We like that, don't we? We, we like that. We like that a lot. There's a lot of expectation and there'll be a lot of pressure on this job. Uh, and Tony Gustafsson is coming in knowing exactly what those pressures are. Um, also, Maury, uh, great to see the FFA involving Socceroos and Matildas legends, uh, Lucas Neal and Alicia Ferguson-Cook to assist with the announcement. Uh, Lucas in particular, uh, back in the fold after many years in exile, I know that uh, you and the Golden Generation had uh, a part to play in that. Mate, well, thanks very much for mentioning that, Simon, uh, because, mate, we played a massive part. Uh, we, don't, we don't normally pump up our tyres enough, if I'm being honest, but myself uh, and, and then leading on to the golden generation, that's the reason why FFA have got a contact with Lucas Neal now. Um, so for me, it's great to see him involved uh, and being able to help on that particular occasion for the FFA. Strong leadership, uh, Simon, will show that, Tapping into the golden generation is a strength, not a weakness. And I think the sooner we realise in Australia the value and the doors that we can open, we'll have a much better future. It was a little bit disappointing to... I'm I'm so glad to see Lucas back in the fold. But as Maury said, we, we already knew that because we'd spoken to him through the golden generation. Would have been nice from the FFA just to give someone else the accolades instead of trying to take the accolades themselves and mate I'm not pumping Maury's tyres up but Maury was behind it because uh, I remember our first Zoom meeting when I seen Lucas and I said hello my son you know like uh, I hadn't seen him for so long it was great to see him yeah it was great it was great to see him 
Um, the FFA could have just said, you know, we'd like to thank the Golden Generation for helping make this happen. But uh, obviously, once again, they didn't. And they thought they'd try to take the uh, glory for themselves, which is disappointing. All it needed was a thank you. That's it. Uh, that's aside, boys, and I'm not sort of trying to um, uh, belittle the point, but is this the start of uh, something more formal between the game in Australia and Lucas? Is he going to be back involved on a more regular basis? Is he going to have an official role to play with perhaps the national teams as a mentor, an ambassador, something like that? All those things, Simon, that you touch on are are certainly possible now. Um, The door has been opened. Uh, for dialogue with Lucas and I'm sure um, you know through some some good discussion and some clear strategy there's there's definitely a role for Lucas uh, especially around that kind of mentoring role uh, that you mentioned uh, and that can that can be with the women obviously can cross over with the men plus being on ground over here in the in the UK where a lot of our girls um, are playing as well so mate, hopefully um, bigger and better things to come and Great to see Lucas. And to be fair, he was looking a little bit swazzy in that suit, wasn't he? He was looking sharp. <laughs> <laughs> he was looking sharp. What about the message I sent him? You're looking sharp, son. You've been MIA for a while, but you're looking sharp. <laughs> he was indeed. And uh, obviously, he's got a sharp football mind, which we hope to utilise over the coming months and years. Maury, on a different topic, uh, the A-League clubs and the PFA are, according to the Sydney Morning Herald on Friday, on the cusp of agreeing this uh, long-awaited CBA deal. Uh, the salary cap, as we expected, uh, will probably be slashed to $2.1 million. The season is still slated at the moment to start in December, but uh, that at least is some good news. Yeah, look, it is, it is good. Um, it's kind of the timing and all that sort of stuff has probably hindered, if, I, if I'm honest, a few players in, in Australia. This uncertainty uh, around about the transfer window in particular in, in Europe um, you know, for some players it's helped. For some, it's kind of, you know, stopped any real serious conversations that they could have had. There, there has been a lot of uncertainty. So, the quicker this can get done, and it's it's pleasing to hear that they are quite close. Uh, Simon, we know the, the 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 drop in salary cap, as you mentioned, the two point one million. So, will be tough for clubs, but hopefully we can get that sorted quickly. Okay, um, in terms of where A-League players are going on the back of this uh, salary cap being slashed, uh, increasingly a lot of them heading over to the Indian Super League. Um, Scott Neville and Dylan Fox rumoured to be the next uh, two players uh, on the plane to India. Robbie Fowler rumoured to be becoming uh, the next coach of, of Bengal. Spider, are we seeing the rise of Indian football powered by money that's is potentially going to rival China and the Chinese Super League in, in the next couple of years? Look, uh, I don't know if it's going to rival China, but if we recall what China did, uh, we, sadly, in Australia, can't compete with these countries with money. And the players, we all know how short their careers are. They sometimes do go to dungeons of places to play football, but to earn good money. And we do love that word, dungeon. <laughs> but there are some places like that, like Bangladesh. We're getting players going to Bangladesh, guys, because yeah. the coin is too good. And with our salary cap, with the way it works, with our taxes in Australia, it's just impossible to compete with these countries. So, as a player, yet are they making the right move for their career? Probably no. If they're going at the right age, like we've seen before, players go to Middle East and that at the back of their careers and fill their boots, so be it. 
Okay, in terms of uh, on-pitch action, uh, Nikita Rukovitsa on target again from the penalty spot, but uh, his Israeli team hammered 7-2 by, by Tottenham in, in the Europa League. Uh, the Champions League in Asia remains a competition, guys, in some disarray. The West Zone has almost completed its obligations. Uh, congrats to Brad Jones's Al Nasser. They face uh, Persepolis in the semi-finals. Uh, the East Zone, though, hasn't kicked a ball since Sydney drew with John Book uh, all the way back on the 4th of March. And with these travel restrictions, Maury, in and out of Australian quarantine rules in place for those who return, at, at what point... Do, I, do Australian plugs, uh, clubs continue perhaps pulling the plug on this competition because it looks increasingly difficult to, uh, to actually complete it in the East Side? Mate, it, it looks actually impossible, doesn't it? I mean, for, for the other side of the competition to be at semi-final stage and, you know, still um, so many games in the group stages uh, to be completed uh, on, on the, the Australian kind of group's side, I don't know how it's possible. I think that the, the December 19 was when the final was booked in for. Um, hey, I can't see how that is possible to get played. <laughs> I love when you start thinking, buds. When but, I see you start thinking, trying to go, how's this possible? I just right. don't know how they're going to do this. Hey, but it's not, but unless, unless what they do with the, the, the other groups that haven't completed their, their, their group rounds, unless they seed or, or kind of, and come up with some idea about who's one and two and have a, a quicker kind of scenario like they did in the Champions League. At the, yeah. uh, that's the only way that it can come to a, a, a final that can be played this year. Otherwise, it's impossible. The, the other yeah. problem, Spider, is that, uh, again, that the later this competition is pushed back and we're already in October now, they've still got, you know, four, in some cases, five group games to play before you even yeah. get the knockout phase. If the A-League is going to start in December. How, how does that work? Say if, if Sydney or Melbourne Victory or Perth Glory were to get to the latter stage of the competition, it, it'd be impossible. Yeah, no, no. You, mate, you, you're spot on. And that's why I said when, when Maury speaks about it, when I start seeing his brain think, it just makes me laugh because we as football people, we sit here and we think, what is going on? Like, yeah. how are these clubs going to manage this? Um, yeah, I agree with Maury. They're, they're probably just going to have to go bang one-off matches and get and get it done with. But that means Perth Glory. It means Sydney FC have got to fly over there and actually play. Now, I don't even know if that's been set up yet for them to play. That's probably one to speak to those two clubs and say, what is going on, guys? Like, are you hey, actually playing this tournament or not? They're, they're not they letting anyone know either, are they? Nah, and then to be fair, to be, like the, the, the Champions League actually costs Australian clubs money, a lot of money. Uh, you know, you're talking three or four hundred thousand uh, dollars. Now, if if the groups were seeded, for example, um, Australian teams wouldn't be in the top one or two seeds in those groups. Simon, would they? No, not at the moment. Mm. So, no. so there might, there might be a way where you're kind of not pissing anybody off in terms of AFC and all that sort of stuff. A solution that they've found, and the Aussie clubs could save some money. That that'd probably be a nice solution for them. Well, Perth Glory won't be going then, mate. <laughs> It's just with travel and all that sort of stuff. I just can't see, and the restrictions and all those kind of things. I don't, I can't see it being played out. It's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, I think the AFC obviously wants to get it uh, played because it's got broadcast commitments, commercial commitments, um, and during a, the time of COVID, everybody is struggling for dollars. All right. Uh, thanks very much for the moment, guys. Let's head overseas. London calling. 
London calling. Well, let's uh, start our overseas segment by, well, we've got to go to the Premier League, haven't we? <laughs> in the English Premier League. Liverpool beaten 7-2 by Aston Villa. Manchester United smashed 6-1 at home by Tottenham Hotspur and Chelsea thumping Crystal Palace by four goals to nil. Man City couldn't win again. In the end of that weekend, the draw, I'm taking that at Ellen Rose, <laughs> given what happened. Yeah. What on earth is going on with football in the Premier League at the moment, guys? Oh, spies, do you see <laughs> I, I I was watching I was watching Seville Barcelona. I got carried away with watching that game. Was that a draw? Did, which one? That was a yeah, draw. That, that was a draw. But mate, I can't believe that Liverpool lost seven two. And I, I was thinking uh, Solskjaer was going to get back morning, but maybe that that result's taken the gloss off the other results. So uh-huh. maybe they'll say it's just a COVID thing. We'll just keep going the way it is. I just can't believe what's happening in world football at the moment. Like, the Premier League's gone bananas. But all over Europe, there's goals flying left and centre. Everton, the last time uh, they won four top flight games, uh, well, the first four, was in 1969, Simon. They actually won the league that year. Uh, They've got off to an amazing start. Calvert-Lewin scoring goals every every week, every game. James Rodriguez, massive for Everton since he's come in. Um, Leicester... Took an absolute surprise uh, battering by by West Ham. The, the Liverpool the Liverpool game was 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 incredible. Aston Villa could have scored ten. Ollie Watkins got got three. Could have scored five. Grealish could have got a hat trick. Barkley could have got a hat trick. Uh, the high line spikes. Liverpool played the yeah. high line, but they didn't have pressure on the ball. So Aston Villa was getting in behind them mate, for fun. Uh, Man United, Man United getting Tonk 6-1 at home. Oh, my God. There was an incident in this game uh, between Lamella and, and Martial there where Martial got sent off. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And I, if the referee is going to send Martial off, he's got to send Lamella off. He's con the referee. Uh, mate, it was handbag spikes. Ended up. Martial got sent off. Straight after that, Man United got caught trying to play out from the back, conceded a third, uh, and it just went from bad to worse for him. Yeah, it's strange. Uh, It seems to me that Solskjaer, with the way they finished last season, everyone was saying, yeah, it's turning, and now the season's restarted, and they've gone back to playing crap, really. And for a club the size of them, like what I've heard from Man United supporters is, their recruiting's been poor. And even Rooney came out the other day and said they should have actually spent their money going after someone like, you know, Kane. Kane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, just, it seems as if they've not had a plan. I mean, now that you talk Edison Cavani uh, coming in, but he's never been on the radar. And there's no way that he could have been on the radar and kept the player of that um, stature in the game quiet. So the feeling here in the UK is that they're just... 
they're off the cuff. Yeah. Yeah. They look like that, don't they, Maury? I, I would have loved to see Roy Keane on one of the TV one of the TV shows this week, and that would have been gold. <laughs> Peter, I just want to ask you about um, Liverpool and that that's, uh, results at Villa Park. Of course, they were without Alisson, their first-choice yeah. goalkeeper. His replacement, Adrian, has never really convinced between the posts. How important is Alisson to the way Liverpool play? Maury mentioned that, that high defensive line. How much is he going to be missed over the next four to six weeks, which is due to be out for? Yeah, look, I think we all know how important a good goalkeeper is. Uh, he made the difference. He come in and Liverpool all of a sudden, uh, you know, won Champions League, won titles. He's a, he's a fantastic goalkeeper. And what happens when you have someone like that in goals? Uh, the team's more confident. And I don't say Adrian's a poor goalkeeper. It's just the way it pans out. Some, some keepers just unlucky when they go in uh, behind someone as good as Alisson. Now, Liverpool for me... All pre-season, they played a high line, Simon. They, they were playing risky football all season. We all know the Premier League is smart managers, very good players. Someone's going to work you out. Did we think it was going to be Aston Villa? No. But I'm sure Klopp won't panic. Uh, I'm sure they have a lot to say to him, but I'm sure they'll bounce back. In football, in these times, Maury... Yeah. We're going to see a lot of results like this. No, because how much how much of a factor is the no fans in the stadium actually playing? Massive. We spoke about it last week, weeks ago. It's it's huge, huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, That's you go to Liverpool, you go to Liverpool, or you go to at Villa Park. There's no supporters now. It's these big players thrive on getting abuse. They love it, mm-hmm. and they want to show the opposition fans, and they want to shut them up. And they perform. Now, I'm not saying they're not trying 100% Maury, but it is a big difference when there's no one there. No, it's a massive one. And Adrian Simon that come in for this game, he cops seven. um, But the first goal was a mistake from Adrian, trying to overplay from the back. uh, A bad pass uh, ends up coming back into Ollie Watkins, who scored. So confidence-wise, with your goalkeeper coming in uh, and making a mistake from the very beginning, uh, and being without Alisson for four or six weeks, I tell you what, that could be a really, really big uh, moment for potentially what Liverpool can or can't do this season. Yeah, but the other teams are stuttering at the moment as well, Maury. Oh, I think it's going to be a real strange season this year, the Premier League. Mate, we're back to the 80s. We've got Everton and Aston Villa on top of the league. Go on, answer, Lottie. <laughs> 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 Everton last uh, champions of England 1985 I think it was wasn't it anyway oh, was it? I just, I've seen a stat this week Simon that the, the first time they won the top four games in the top division yeah. um, was in 1969 and they won the league that year 69-70 yeah I was just trying to think the last time they won the league anyway I know Aston Villa last won it in 1981 because they were European champions the next year talking of Liverpool um, this story sort of caught my eye young striker no doubt he's got lots of potential Ryan Brewster is very highly rated at Liverpool he's not played a single minute in the Premier League Sheffield United have just signed for 23 and a half million Pounds, And this is in the week when clubs like Macclesfield Town have gone under and there's still no official agreement between the Premier League clubs and the English Football League clubs and even lower down the scale to help them out. This really is an an indication of just how big the gap is between the two. They just operate on different levels, don't they? 
Massively, massively. And that's, the, you know, 23 million, you mentioned. That's not chumps change. Um, and Sheffield United, uh, look, they're yet, they're yet to get a point in the, in the Premier League this year. So it's strange that he's not, uh, he's not had some kind of involvement. A lot of things being spoken about here, Simon, in terms of the, the EFL, the League Ones and the League Twos. And you've, you've also written a, a story, I believe, uh, recently. But there's talk of the support from government, which we would never get in Australia, let's be honest. Um, but also the, the Premier League clubs, you know, in terms of the parachute payment that, that teams get when they're relegated. Yeah. They're, talk, they're talking about, you know, if they can try and find a solution to help um, the, the lower division clubs with this parachute kind of money. And that hopefully could save clubs uh, because we're talking hundreds, hundred odd years of, of history. There's, that's something that has to be protected. And there's a big push here in the UK and hopefully they can come up with the right answers. I hope so. Um, just finally on this uh, segment, Spider, we've seen a Champions League uh, draw this week. Uh, Champions Bayern in with Atletico Madrid, Salzburg, Lokomotiv Moscow. Uh, Our Mobile, of course, is uh, going to play in the Champions League for Midtjylland and he's uh, got some interesting opposition. Liverpool, Ajax and Atalanta. That's a tough group. That one. Oh, in- what, a, what a great group for him. Yeah, brilliant experience for him. Group G, Juve, Barca, Dinamo Kiev and Ferenc Varos. Uh, group H is the, is the group of death for me. Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester United, RB Leipzig and Basaksehir, the, the Turkish club that are, are cashed up as well. Um, and James Holland, of course, is in the Europa League uh, as well. They've qualified, Maury, with, uh, with LASK, a competition he did so well in last year. Yep, yep. And, and Dejanek, Dejanek also, I believe, uh, with Red Star, qualified yep. for Europa. Um, so, yeah, it's good to, to see some Aussies that are going to be experiencing, uh, you know, football at the highest level and playing. The European Knights, mate, I mean, Spider, you've played them as well. They're, they're amazing. They're amazing uh, Knights. Uh, they really get the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. You get the opportunity to test yourself against the best. So, look, great to see some Aussie boys that uh, are going to experience that. Awa Mabil, what a story. He was in tears after their game where they qualified. Um, what an opportunity. What a group is. It's a really exciting group. Sure is. Yeah, if you're going to go out, more, you might as well go out to those teams. You don't give much hope then, uh, Spider. <laughs> oh, well, you know the beauty is, Simon, when we get him on the show, we can ask him his favourite stadium. He might have one of those three to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, whose jersey did you get? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, boys, uh, for the moment. Let's move on to our final segment for today. And for Footballers' Lives... We have one of Australia's all-time greats. Footballers Live. Well, our guest today was born in Adelaide in 1976 and he made his debut for Adelaide City as a teenager before almost immediately heading overseas to join Standard Liège in Belgium. He established himself in Europe at Antwerp and then joined Cremonese in Italy. He then went to England with Portsmouth and Coventry before completing his tour of the big leagues in Spain with Osasuna and Alaves, before returning home in 2007 to play out his days in the A-League with the Central Coast Mariners, Sydney FC, and finally Melbourne Heart. He won 55 caps for the Socceroos, scoring 27 goals, and of course became famous for scoring that penalty that took the national team to the first World Cup in 32 years. He's since enjoyed stints as head coach at Melbourne Heart and Brisbane Raw, and these days he works for Optus Sport as a TV pundit and commentator, although I think somehow it won't be too long before we see 
and back in the technical zone. It is a great pleasure to welcome to the podcast the great John Aloisi. How are you, Johnny? John Aloisi. Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I've been uh, listening and uh, I've been enjoying the podcast so far, so it's a pleasure to be on. Great to have you. Um, Johnny, take us back to those early days in Adelaide as a kid and growing up with your brother, Ross. You obviously came from a, a big football family, Italian heritage. Was it always in your blood and always your dream? It was in our blood because my dad, uh, he played a bit, but he, he mainly coached. So we can only remember him coaching and coaching us as kids and um, in the backyard with my brother playing. But we played a lot of different sports. We are mainly cricket in the summer um, and in the winter was uh, football, soccer. And um, and we used to go support our, um, our local team, which was Adelaide City, which was of Italian heritage as well. And we used to spend our days and hours there, weekends there, and um, and that was really our second home. So it was. Uh, I enjoyed my upbringing. I enjoyed uh, playing sport, um, and probably having an older brother pushed me a lot as well. So you know, it was uh, it was great to have Ross as a, a sort of a I wouldn't say a mentor, but you know, someone that you could kick the ball around with. Do you remember your debut for uh, for Adelaide City? I think you were only was it was it 15? 15, I think, yeah, I was fifteen? Fifteen, yeah, you were only game old. for them. Yeah, it was my only game because then I ended up going to the Institute of Sport um, for a, a little bit there with Maury. And we had the Dukes, uh, Skokes. We, we, we had a pretty good group. And then from there, I went overseas. Um, but I remember my debut because it was against Melbourne Knights, Melbourne Croatia back then. And um, I came on as a sub with about 15 minutes to go and... Um, caused a little bit of uh, a riot. It was, uh, I ended up getting tackled by uh, a player called Talaich, Mark Talaich, and, um, and I fell to the ground and he sort of pushed my face down in the ground and, you know, it was a bit of a scuffle. And, uh, welcome, and all young of a sudden, boy. What's that? Welcome, young boy. Yeah, welcome, young boy, which, you know, you expect that from an older pro. But um, the Italians didn't fence and hit it. <laughs> Front page of the paper, but not my debut, the, the fight that was going to happen. How did that uh, move overseas uh, come about, uh, John? It came about, I was um, playing with a, a Serbian player at Adelaide City and um, he was saying to me, he goes, you, your best bet is to go overseas now and, uh, and try and make it um, at an early age because that's a, a foot in the door. They will take a punt on a younger player. And so he, he set me up with an agent that took me over to, to Belgium. I went on a two-week trial with uh, Standard Liège and then um, they wanted to sign me. So that's how it came about. It was, uh, it was a rude shock uh, because it was winter there and it was uh, minus seven degrees when I first went over there and I was like, never been as cold in my life before. But um, it was something that it was a dream to play in Europe. You, you sort of struggled to establish yourself a bit in Belgium, but um, you, I know that you became the youngest foreigner ever to score in Serie A with, with Cremonese. That, that must have been a fantastic experience. Yeah, that was uh, a good experience, especially, you know, that, that growing up watching Serie A um, on Sunday mornings, you know, the, it was watching the best players in the world. And back then they were the best players. Uh, all the, you, you only allowed three foreigners back then and, uh, and the Italians seemed to spend all their money uh, on their, those foreign players. So to play against the likes of AC Milan and, and uh, Juventus and Inter Milan and the, uh, playing at the San Siro was, was special. But uh, playing in a team that's struggling uh, in Italy, 
is not that nice because um, back then it was very defensive and being a striker, you didn't get many chances. And then, <laughs> Run the channel, son. Run the channel. <laughs> uh, it was horrible. And all, all every training session was done on defensive tactics and I'm going, any danger of us touching a ball here? Uh, so it was, um, it was a, a different experience, put it that way. I, I didn't enjoy my football as much in Italy as I did elsewhere. Johnny, you, you mentioned you went you went at a young age, um, and the challenges for young players going overseas. You touched on the the weather, so something you you probably hadn't experienced, but also in terms of foreign countries and language. Uh, so talk us through that experience. Yeah, that was hard, Maury, because I went to Liège first, and that's French speaking in Belgium, and and I couldn't speak a word of French. So, and uh, and what it's like, you know what it's like. All the 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 Aussies that go over there uh, know that you have to really fight for your spot because they they sort of look down on you because you know you're you're Australian, you shouldn't be taking one of the local uh, players' spots. So, um, you, you really have to fight, and and you had a, you know, we talk about um language barriers and, and the weather but it's also missing home missing your family um going through that who do you turn to when things aren't going well, well you've got no one really to turn to you you have to get through it yourself and uh, that also makes you i think that makes you that that uh, that much stronger mentally and, and 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 it hardens you up very early Johnny, do you reckon the two-footed tackles Roscoe put on you in the backyard hardened you up? <laughs> you know what, Spider? He, he put a few two-footed tackles on me. We used to like every game that we played, whether it was football, whether it was cricket, whether it was table tennis or, or just snooker, it would end up in a fight. And um, <laughs> he, he, he stopped trying to fight me when I got a bit bigger than him. <laughs> and he was preparing you for European football, but... It's true, but you know what, Spotty? You, you say that, and and you're. It's funny. It's, it, we're joking around about it, but it is true. It does prepare you because over there, you know, the, in training, that the, some of the tackles that used to fly about because people are desperate to play. They're playing for their future. They're playing for their spot. Um, and if you can't deal with it, you're not going to last. And uh, yeah. so that that did, that did help me quite a bit. But also playing in the local uh, NPL state league back then. You know, we played against some hard players growing up. So that, that, that held me in good stead as well. Johnny, probably one of the things that Australia couldn't prepare you for, at least at senior level, was being relegated. And, and unfortunately for you, that seemed to become a bit of a feature of, and I'm not wishing to sound unkind, but it was a feature of your club career. You got relegated twice with Cremonese. Uh, I think you got relegated with Coventry City. And you also got rele- relegated, I think I'm right in saying, with Alavash as well in, yes. in your final season in Spain. That, they must be very difficult um, things to deal with. I know Spider and Maury, you know, you played for clubs that were challenging for trophies at the top uh, end of, the, of, of your particular leagues. But for you, fighting against that drop, how tough is that mentally? And how big an impact does relegation have, not just on the club, but on players? Yeah, it, um, mentally it's very tough. At first, in Italy, I, I didn't know how to handle it well. Uh, I was only young, of course, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't pretty. But it was also hard on the whole city because you think about when you're playing Serie A and you're getting Juventus coming to town or you know, AC Milan or Inter Milan, it, it's, it's great for the economy because they're bringing thousands of fans. So when you're talking about getting relegated, it's not just the club, it's the whole actual city that suffer. 
and and the players, of course. So it's um, it's a it's a not a great experience, but they did uh, hold me in good stead for future relegation battles because you say, and I did get relegated four times, but uh, that's uh, over a twenty-year period. So, so there was there was also your moments. You, you fought relegation and you survived, and that was just as important as winning a trophy. And um, because you know it was like a party in the city and the, at the club, and uh, with Osasuna, uh, which were a team that were normally going to fight relegation, we we seemed to survive uh, every time in the four years that I was there. And um, there was it was important for not only the team but for the whole city. I want to ask you about uh, the the cup final for Osasuna in a moment, but before that, uh, just just a brief recollection on your time in England with uh, Coventry, of course, but, but also with, with Portsmouth, where you were part of a little sort of Australian colony, um, all thanks to Terry Venables, really. How, how much of an influence was, was he on your career? Yeah, yeah, I started playing in the national team um, because of Terry Venables. He, he selected me for the first time. Um, I, I thought that he was he was a great manager. Um, tactically, he was the first manager that really taught us tactically. Uh, that had that you know that way of putting it that just made it simple for us that we understood what exactly what our roles were. Um, and and he was a great man manager. And yeah, he uh, he brought uh, not only myself but Spider was supposed to, to play there, but he couldn't get the work permit. Would have been great to play with Spider, um, but all went a bit pear shaped when Terry left because um, you know we were left there and they didn't want us Australians still there. But I, I stayed on for a little bit and uh, ended up having a pretty good year that ended up getting sold to Coventry City in the, the Premier League. Johnny, talk talk us about that because you've told me that story before. So who was the coach that came in after that? So we had Terry Fenwick. Uh, who was the coach. And then when Terry Venables left, he left and Alan Ball came in. And Alan Ball straight away just sat me down and said, I don't want you here. I don't want any of the Australians here. And it was pretty blunt about it. But um, I had nowhere to go uh, because I hadn't really played unbelievably well that I had, you know, clubs lining up. So um, I I just had to fight my spot. And uh, at first I wasn't even in the squad and then then started to make the bench and then, you know, when I was on the bench and I'd come in, I'd, I'd uh, do my best and score a goal. And then, you, you know, you, you start to win your spot back. And in the end, he had no choice but to play me. And uh, then ended up going on a, a pretty good run. Did you have a similar situation with, with Gordon Strachan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Gordon Strachan, yeah. Gordon Strachan, look, I could understand Gordon Strachan a little bit too because... Um, we, you know how hard it was when we used to go with our national team, with the, with the, the Socceroos, yeah. and we used to miss out, and he wasn't happy that I went away uh, on a five-week... Uh, like Vanuatu. And, I think that was... It was, it was, it was Coffs Harbour. Do you remember the Coffs Harbour trip? Oh, do I what? What a trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, I ended up bloody tearing my hamstring, and I was out for bloody two months after that trip. So I, I tore it in the last game. I think it was against Fiji, um, <laughs> mind you. And so he was he was not happy at all. And uh, when I got back, he, he said that, um, you know, again, uh, I, I can't have this anymore and, you know, look for another club. But uh, I started to work my way back in and, and started to play again. I want to ask you one question, uh, John, about uh, your relegation season with Coventry in 2001. You're quite sort of renowned in Australia as being you know, a very 
mild mannered, yeah, the occasional <laughs> on the sidelines, but you know, a very controlled person. You got sent off for punching Danny Mills in a game against Charlton. What happened oh. there? I wouldn't call that a punch, Simon. If you see the footage, it is a weak punch. It's a slap, and I'm embarrassed that I actually <laughs> didn't punch him. It's more would say handbags. Yeah. Oh, I would have loved to have punched him properly and got sent off for a good reason. <laughs> Um, he was he was kicking me all game, Simon, and and I just uh, I lost it. And you know, every time that uh, you know you look back and you and you look at it and you go, well, you know, shorter control your temper a little bit better. But um, yeah, I ended up getting three games for that that sending off. In, in terms of your move to Spain, you, you went to Osasuna, and that's where you played the most games in your career: 121 appearances, 29 goals. Uh, which included a cup final appearance, and you scored in that game as well. Is that where you were the happiest during your playing career with Osasuna? Yeah, definitely the happiest. I think that that's where I, I felt at home. I felt like it was a family club, um, but also like the, the, the players, and, and, and not only the, the, the players that I played with, but playing against. It was it was a really good league, and it was a mix between Italy and England at the time, where England was. Uh, was great to play uh, in front of the crowds and that, but it was uh, very open. And um, probably the, the tactical side wasn't there that much back then. But um, in Spain, the tactics were there, but they also gave you that little bit of freedom. Whereas in Italy, it was the other way around. It was just all tactical. So it was a good mixture and I enjoyed my football the most in Spain. Johnny, before we start talking about your, your time when you returned uh, back to Australia, I know that you were recently uh, back at Osasuna and you, you got a, a fantastic uh, reception from the supporters there. And how, how did that make you feel? You know, like it's a club that you've really enjoyed, you had some great times, but the respect that they have for players that have done the business for the club. I was shocked, Maury, uh, to be honest, because I hadn't been back there for 15 years. And then uh, to go back there and, um, and be received like that, it, 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 was, it was humbling. It was uh, a great experience. Uh, a lot of them remember because of the cup final, I, I scored the goal and I equalised right near the end against Real Betis. We ended up losing an extra time, but that's the only cup final that Osterson has been to in their 100-year history. Wow. And, um, and so it, it, it means a lot to them. Um, and not only in the stadium, I was just walking down the street in the, in the city and, you know, people were stopping me and, and wanting to talk about the, the cup final, my time at Osasuna. And, um, it, it's, uh, but that's football. That's their life. That's, that's what yeah. they, they, they just love it. And, and, and they remember their ex-players and, and they respect their ex-players as well. Which is terrific. Um, Johnny, let's just talk briefly about your playing days back here in Australia. It's sort of a bit of a, bit of a mixed bag, I guess, to, to round out your career. You finally got to play in a grand final for the Mariners, but you lost. You won the premiership with Sydney FC, scored a wonderful goal uh, to clinch that trophy against Melbourne Victory, but missed out on the grand final due to injury. Um, you had a difficult relationship with the fans with, with Sydney FC, it's probably fair to say. And then you end up with Melbourne Heart and you score in the first ever uh, Melbourne Derby. Um, just, just pick out some of the highs and lows of your of your final few years as a player with those clubs. Well, definitely a high was um, you know win the premiers plate with both Central Coast Mariners and with Sydney FC, um, and um, and you know there were definitely the the low was the injury that I had um, just before I went to Sydney FC, and then during that period at Sydney, I, I had a bad knee injury. 
And I, I thought that I was going to be able to get back to what I was before, prior to the injury, but it, I just couldn't. Like my my knee was just it wasn't strong enough, and I didn't have the same. Your mind's there, and you know where you want to be, and but you just your body's not following. And it, and it took a while to just get back to a certain level um, in my second season at Sydney, which was good because I was able to contribute to winning that Premier's Plate and score. I think I was leading goal scorer of the, the, the team that year. Um, but it was it was tough going because I didn't enjoy actually training anymore because I couldn't do what I was able to do before the injury. You had to, you had, as I say, a bit of a... A, a difficult relationship with the fans because you'd come in on, on marquee money and, and a lot was expected of you. Did you feel as though those expectations were unfair given the fact that you were carrying that injury as well? Yeah, but players, Simon, don't, I mean, not players, the fans don't care about injuries. They don't care about, you know, and nor should they. Like once you set foot onto that pitch, you're there to perform. And so I understood that. I, I, I get it. I understand why they were... Um, you know, expecting more of me. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, they, they actually turned and they, they supported me when, you know, <laughs> I was scoring goals towards the end of the season to win the Premier's Plate. So, you know, it, uh, supporters, you know, they want to see their team win. They want to see their players perform. Um, and you just have to accept that, that sometimes you get a little bit uh, upset when the club doesn't protect you a little bit more because, you know, they're there to do that for you as well. Um, as as a player or or whatever your in, involvement is in with the club, um, and I don't believe Sydney FC at the time did really protect individuals. And in terms of uh, your coaching career, you took your first steps with with Melbourne Hearts, and then of course you subsequently coached uh, Brisbane. Did that first coaching job come? Were you ready for it? Do you think at that at that point, or by the time you went to Brisbane? Were you more experienced and more able to deal with with that coaching role? Do you think you're never ready to be the head coach? You you get through <laughs> no matter how much pre uh, you know like if you've been an assistant for years or if you've been because you can't prepare for what's uh, you know going to be thrown at you. But I would say that uh, I know the results weren't there with Melbourne Heart, but that was in, invaluable, the experience that I had at Melbourne Heart. I, I uh, learned so much. And, and it's more, it's not about the, the tactical side because the tactical side, you know, you, you know enough about the, uh, even the man management with the players, you know enough about. It's more dealing with, you know, the board, the media, um, the surroundings that come with being a head coach. And I had no idea that, uh, you know, the club at the time wanted to sell. So there was a, it was a massive uh, cut in the football budget. And so, the, you know, I didn't know how to really handle that and uh, until, you know, the experience that I had. And that, that set me up for Brisbane Raw because when I stepped into Brisbane Raw, it was a disaster. The, the, they had, the players hadn't been paid um, their super for over a year. We've been kicked out of training ground. Um, yeah. <laughs> many a times and again it's still happening with Brisbane Raw they just got kicked out recently so it, that that prepared me Simon uh, that experience I had at Melbourne Heart and, and so when I went to Brisbane Raw I knew what to expect and how to handle it and we were unfortunate we didn't win the Premier's Plate that year because we uh, we drew in the last game if we'd won we would have won victory. the title that was against victory wasn't it John yeah against victory Matty Mackay Mr Sitter he's I'm still oh, talking about that uh, two or three minutes in it was as well yeah, it was. an early goal um, would have been and then that 5-4 uh, game spider against Western Sydney Wanderers uh, nah, that was a, what, what a way what a way to finish football at the old Parramatta Stadium 
Like, yeah. seriously, I know it went on the wrong side for you guys, but that, that stadium brought so many memories for that club, uh, Western Sydney Wanderers, and what a game it was. I, I'll never forget it as well. Like, full house, we were 3-0 down. Like, seriously, we were attacking, attacking, attacking. Every time you just went up goal, it was yeah. like 3 nil down after 27 minutes in a semi-final. That was just an incredible game of football. Yeah, the, the atmosphere, look, we, we, we've played in many of stadiums around the world. I, I can't recall an atmosphere like that. That night there, it nah. just, you, you could just feel like when, when there was a, a goal scored, like when it went to 3-1, that just the crowd picked up and just lifted the team, lifted your team. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and we ended up going bloody 4-3 down and to equalise, to make it 4-4, go on to extra time. I still think, and a lot of people have brought that up, not just that game, but that season, that was probably the peak of the A-League that season. Yes. And you're talking about the, the football being played, the way that it was played, and also the crowds that we were getting. It was, it was a good year that year. Johnny, yeah, it was unbelievable. Johnny, the, the early days at, at Melbourne Heart, I think what a lot of people uh, actually forget, uh, especially in a, a salary cap league, uh, the club sold three or four of your brightest, youngest players. You, you, I think it was Curtis Good, you had Hamill. Uh, as Bage, yeah. As and But these players were all on, obviously, low wages. But first-team players, it's, it's virtually impossible to replace that quality at that, at that figure. No, the only way you could replace them is bringing young players in again, but they're not ready. And so I brought in Stefan Mork, I brought in Ben Garuccio, um, and these players that were going to become very good players, very good professionals, but they weren't quite ready. But that's where the club, and this is where I, I soon realised, you know, because I didn't want to come out and make excuses because you're a coach, you can't be making excuses. But the club should be transparent with the supporters, with the media and say, look, we're going to go through a bit of a transitional period because we just lost Curtis Good, uh, Brendan Hammer was Aziz Bage, literally a few weeks before the season started. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> some of our main players. Then I brought in um, Redmayne that hadn't really played the regular football until that stage. So he's still learning his trade. These young players are going to take time. Um, and without a relegation league, you should be able to give them that time. But um, obviously, I didn't get the time. <laughs> Two more questions, um, Johnny, before we move on to some Twitter questions from our listeners. Um, first of all, with, with Brisbane, was that Champions League game against Ceres Negros, was that your worst night in football? It might have been Maury's as well. It was my fault. Um, it was my fault. <laughs> <both of you. laughs> um, and then, then we'll ask you about the World Cup in, uh, in Germany. But first of all, that, that game at, uh, at Nathan, which I called along with Ned Zelich, one of the most surreal nights, I think. <laughs> so, so you know what, Simon? It, it, um, it all came out um, and, and it, was, it was not great. Of course, it wasn't great, and it was embarrassing for a lot of people. But that—that's what we'd have been dealing with through uh, ever since we're at Brisbane Raw, because the, the little things. So the, the 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 kit man at the time who was doing the shirts, he he'd get that overworked. He virtually hadn't slept for you know weeks on end, and uh, and uh, he you know made mistakes and and whatever else. But that's because uh, the club were taking shortcuts in too many things. And um, yes, we're the the face of it, so it looks like it's it's our fault. But it's you know it's it's an issue, and it has been an issue for a long period with not just one club, but many clubs in the A League. And sometimes it needs to come out like that so people realise 
well, what are we doing? Are we really a professional setup or we're just a part of a professional league that's run like, um, you know, on an oily rag, which we were running on an oily rag, believe me. I was still looking. I was still looking when Chris Fong absolutely belted me saying it was my fault. Mate, I was trying to look through in my job description. Mate, and I, I couldn't see, like, where it said you know, I had to press numbers and names on jersey. <laughs> What about me? I'm trying to get the result and I'm turning around and we can't get Eric Botiak on because his number's coming off. <laughs> then we're trying to stick it back on and I'm going, seriously, this is, this is not happening. Is can, it? I, can, is I, can I tell you, John, a, a, a quick uh, funny story? Because I was in commentary that night along with Ned Zellich and I remember coming out to the ground afterwards and I was, I was fuming on behalf of the A-League. You know, I thought yeah. this is a really bad look for our, our league yeah. across Asia. Um, especially playing in that stadium, which was, you know, 50,000. There must have been, what, 500 people inside it. Yeah. And as I walked out, Ned Zelich, who was in co-commentary, followed behind me. And all I could hear was him just laughing, just absolutely <laughs> guffawing in the background. And I turned around and I said, what are you laughing at? And Ned said, you know, his own inimitable style. It, it's just one of those nights, you know, that you'll, you'll always be able to say, I was there when this yeah. But not very funny for you. That's exactly uh, what he would have said. Uh, exactly it, 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 said. Don't worry. I remember like sitting in the car park with Maureen going, what the hell just happened there? And, yeah. and this is, that was a, that was a um, contrast from just a few months earlier. The, the year before, we ended up uh, qualifying Shanghai against Shanghai Shenhua in China. And uh, Tevez made his appearance and he was on $52 million a year. But... Uh, yeah, the result on the pitch and the performance on the pitch was a lot better that night, but the club was still the same. It, 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 uh, it, it hadn't changed. We were trying to make changes, but it was just getting very, very hard. Okay, um, Johnny, we, uh, we have to uh, sort of wrap this up very shortly, but uh, a couple more questions about the international scene. Um, we've got a, uh, a couple of Twitter questions. Um, obviously, you're famous for this goal that you scored against Uruguay. Uh, Nick Ogle on Facebook asks, I would love to know if John ever thought he was going to miss that penalty that got us the World Cup, or was he 100% confident you were going to score it? Oh, please. What a question <laughs> that is. <laughs> uh, lucky I was confident, because if I wasn't, <laughs> I would have missed. I didn't think twice, Simon. The, 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 uh, it was one of those uh, moments that I... I actually dreamt about, but I also practiced the day before down that end uh, against Ante Kovic, not against Spider, because he might have saved the couple and I would have <laughs> lost my confidence. <laughs> um, Lee, Lee Brocks and Fax also asked, if you drew a graph on how many people still love to ask you about 2005 every year since then, what does that graph look like? Is it steady? Is it increasing or decreasing? You know, it increases um, because the, the, the more that uh, – because there's a generation that don't remember it and then, you know, if they're with their parents or whatever else, that they will bring it up. So – and now with, um, you know, you can just get it on your phone and, and they'll, they'll show it and it's, it's amazing. I think I've met 150,000 people that were at the stadium. Now, I only held, <laughs> held 83,000. <000. laughs> Um, and this one, Johnny, uh, on a slightly different uh, topic from Theoc—I've got to pronounce this correctly—Theoclitopopoulos. 
And it's our question. I reckon, he, I reckon he's a Greek. I reckon he's a Greek. <laughs> it's our question of the week. Uh, congratulations. $100 mail badge from Outback coming your way. Why do you think there's so many less star players, and that's a matter of opinion, of course, being developed now as opposed to when the golden generation came through, despite the NSL only being semi-pro? Interesting question. How much time have we got, Simon? <laughs> Try and make it quick if you can, Jordan. <laughs> oh, look, there's, there's many things that we could bring up and, and talk about uh, about that. It, it's a difficult one to uh, put your finger on because, um, you know, back then I, I still believe that the, the Institute of Sport made a big difference, but also the clubs. I know they were only semi-pro, but, you know, I know that Spider's dream would have been playing for, for Sydney Croatia. My dream was playing for Adelaide City. Um, it meant everything to us, and and that that that's all you were doing uh, when you were playing at the junior level was it was making sure that you you're going to get to the senior level, and um, so and I think that just mentally we spoke about it before we we had to be tough because uh, what we went through as kids. Last one, Johnny, um, and this is my own question. For all you get the, the adulation for scoring that penalty against Uruguay, of course, people sometimes forget that you're uh, one of only five Australian men to score at both the World Cup finals and an Asian Cup finals. That goal against Japan, the third goal, was, it, was that the highlight of, of, or one of the big highlights of, of your career as well, to actually go to a World Cup and score on that stage? Definitely. To go to a World Cup, because we had all dreamt of it and, um, and we hadn't you know, it, it was so many times of trying. I think I was in uh, two campaigns before that. Spider would have been in more. Maury was in the same as me. We just didn't know we were going to get there. And then finally to get there, and it, it you know, I was lucky enough to, to score the goal, you know, in, in that game against Japan. But it was, it was the way we won, the way we came from behind, and because it was our first win, that was our World Cup final. If we didn't win that game, we were never going to get through the group. So to win that was definitely a highlight. Johnny, you also were robbed of a goal in that World Cup uh, <laughs> against Croatia. Um, Graham Paul, he didn't have Graham a great Paul. night. No, nah, that was his last game that he ever <laughs> that he refereed, and then so it should be. I went up to him, Maury. As it was, as the, the uh, I was hitting the ball, he blew the final whistle, and obviously the whistle went before it hit the back of the net. And I and I went to him. What happened? Why did you whistle for? He goes, "Don't worry, you, you, you're through anyway." And I'm like. We would have won the game, and I would have scored another goal at the World Cup. What do you mean? Don't worry. Yeah. I was gutted that I didn't get another goal to my name as well. Was, uh... <laughs> That's been that selfish striker, Spider. Hey, Johnny, tell us, mate. You're 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 one of the players who have played at some unbelievable stadiums about around the world, mate. Well, what's your favourite stadium you've played at? Uh, the Bernabeu and the San Siro. I think the San Siro, like the, the dressing rooms and the way dressing room spider, you would have been in there. It's not big, it's tiny. Yeah. But just when you walk out there, the, you know, just like the, the stand just goes up. It's so steep. It feels like they're on top of you. Um, and just the size of it um, and the history with the San Siro yeah. as well. But uh, the Bernabeu is impressive as well. It's, it's similar. Um, and, and just knowing the history of Real Madrid, it's, uh, it's the, one of the best stadiums that I've ever been in. Johnny, we could talk for hours about uh, your career, about football in general, but uh, time has beaten us, unfortunately. All we can say is uh, thanks once again, mate, for joining us. Uh, brilliant to hear some of your stories. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on. And get Cheers, Jay. Spider and Maury. I don't know if you're going to fall back asleep, Spider, or you have to get up and go to work. <laughs> nah, Popovich has got the whip out, son. <laughs> 
<laughs> thanks, Johnny. And well, thanks for having me. That is us for this week. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Until then, enjoy your football and bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.